All this year, we have been walking through the story of Jesus' life, and uh, I have enjoyed very much my study of it, and I hope that in some ways, I and the others who have been teaching have been able to relay to you the, the powerful gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ as we have gone through this study. It's interesting that we're just now in September, uh, or we're already in September, and we have covered much of the life of Jesus from his birth all the way through to today, starting off talking about the very last week of his life. Now, that's significant to me, maybe not as much to you, but to think about the fact that from now in September until December, we're going to continue to look at the life of Jesus and the relationships that Jesus had and the interactions that Jesus had with people. And from this time, another 16 weeks or so, we're going to only be looking at the last week of Jesus, that there's that much written about Jesus. We oftentimes have made statements like we could read the whole Bible or we could spend our whole life reading the Bible and never soak up all there is to know. But just thinking about 16 weeks of our study from the whole year are going to be focused in on that last week of Jesus' life and the significant things that happen. They're not going to be the same lesson over and over again. It's simply going to be different interactions that Jesus had from this time until that. And I think that's a powerful statement about what Jesus did in that last week. But before we get to it, let's backtrack a little bit because what happens between John chapter 11 and John chapter 12 may have been several weeks, may have been a few months, may have been a few days. Not really exactly sure how much time passed between what happened in, in John 11 and what happens in John 12. But they're connected Remember when the, the letters were written and these books were written, what we call books, there weren't chapters there. It was just one simple story that was written out. And so in chapter 11, we have the story of Lazarus being resurrected from the dead. You remember that Jesus is with his disciples and, and they're discussing the fact that Lazarus is sick and they're wondering, why are we not going to see Lazarus? And they don't go because Jesus has in his mind, there's going to be something better. We're going to go and we're going to raise him from the dead. But what they already know in, in John chapter 11 is that people are after Jesus. They already know Jesus is hated. Jesus is someone that, that the, the leaders are trying to get to. In fact, they know it so well that when Jesus says, let's go to Bethany, which isn't very far from Jerusalem, where all these leaders would have been, when they say, let's go there, Thomas replies to him, well, let's go with them so that we may die with them. And that's in chapter 11, verse 16. See, Thomas, who's the twin, who's what we call doubting Thomas, before he ever gets to the part where he doubts that Jesus has resurrected, is, is in his some sense pessimistic about what's going to happen when they get to Bethany. What's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem is that people are going to kill him, and when they kill him, they're going to kill us. But the powerful thing about Thomas is that he says, let's go. He's going to be beside Jesus. Whether Jesus dies or Jesus lives, he decides, well, we'll go with him. 
And so they go and he resurrects Lazarus from the dead and of course has to have conversation with Mary, his sister, and Martha, his sister, about the things that are going to happen, that I'm the resurrection and life. You ought to know already that I can do these things. And so they have this conversation. All these things happen. But then at the end of chapter 11, there's this conspiracy that continues to happen. Notice verse 45 before we get to the conspiracy. Therefore, many of the Jews... Who came to Mary and saw that he had and saw what he had done believed in him but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done there's usually two responses to Jesus and to what Jesus is doing two responses that we find here in this passage and that is and, and these are the responses to Lazarus's raising but also to Jesus in general is some were amazed by him they were amazed at what they saw at the tomb. They were amazed at, that they could see a man who had been raised from the dead. They were amazed at what they see. But at the same time, because of their amazement, they went to the Pharisees and told the Pharisees what happened. And in verse 47, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come, and they'll take away both our place and our nation. But one of, the, one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you and for one man to die for the people, that the whole ma nation may not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. So we already see that these, these Pharisees are wanting him killed. So there's some who were astonished, some who were amazed at him, and then there were these men who were angry with him because of what he was doing, because he was taking away what they felt like was taking away their nation. So in verse 54 of chapter 11, Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. We don't really know how long he stays, but it says now the Passover of the Jews was near. So it seems as though we skipped some time ahead, and now the Passover is drawing near. And by the way, this is the final Passover. This is the Passover in which Jesus would do, as Caiaphas has already suggested, he would die for his people. And so, as that Passover draws near, many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So the people are wondering, you think Jesus is going to stay in hiding? Do you think Jesus is going to stay where he's been? Do you think that, that he's going to, to stay, well, and they didn't know that he was in Ephraim, but that's where he was? Or do you think he'll come? Do you think he'll come to the feast of the Passover? And while they're wondering that, Jesus shows back up in chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Oh, and who, by the way... Jesus had raised him from the dead. Now, time had passed, but this is the first time we see Jesus back in Bethany with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. 
And what we're going to see in this story is a reflection of what the church is. If you look real closely at the story, you can see what we are as a church, what we should be as a church, and then sometimes what creeps into the church that might not need to. Notice what happens. First, we see he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Just very simple statement. But he calls our attention back to the fact that he's in a place where someone's life had been changed. It was a, a, a life-changing event for Lazarus. And, and he had made, they had made a supper there. And so it in, insinuates, and I believe, that they are celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, what a lot of people are probably thinking is they're celebrating Lazarus. But what Lazarus and Mary and Martha are celebrating is not Lazarus, is it? They're celebrating Jesus. They've made a supper there, and all of them are present. And there Lazarus is sitting at the table with Jesus. What is the picture of the church here? One, it's of changed lives. The church is a place where we gather around the table with Jesus, not about Lazarus' resurrection, but about his resurrection because he is the resurrection and life. And we sit around the table and we see and we know the changes that God has done for us. The changed life of Lazarus from being dead, not just dead for a moment, and, and, and to be brought back to life in some medical way that we see. He was dead for over three days. By that time, as you remember the story, he should have stunk. And Jesus reclaims his life. Lazarus, come forth. You have been changed. And isn't that what the church is about? It's a body of changed people. It's a place where people's lives have been impacted by the good news, by the gospel, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You doubt that, then think about that verse that we've read many, many times, Colossians chapter 3, <coughs> Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have been, what? Anybody remember? Raised? If, therefore, you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. If you have been raised with Christ. What did Lazarus, what had happened to him? He'd been raised by Christ. We've been raised up with Christ and by Christ from our sins. We've been changed and so the church is about... A changed people, changed lives. And notice that the story doesn't just mention Lazarus. Notice the second person in the story, verse 2. So they made supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one reclining at the table with him. Martha was doing what? She was serving. You remember in Luke chapter 10 what Martha was doing? She was serving. That's who Martha was. Now, Jesus rebukes her a little bit in Luke 10, partly because she was complaining about her service and Mary wasn't helping her. 
But Jesus wasn't saying her service was bad. You read with us, I hope, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that we serve one another, that we help one another, we look out for one another's needs. It's part of who Christ was. Jesus got up on the night in which he was betrayed, and he washed the disciples' feet. He served. There was nothing wrong with Martha's serving. It was who she was. If she lived in this day and time, then I would tell her husband to read the five love languages and talk about the acts of service because that's who she was. She was a servant, and that's how she spoke her love language. That's how she spoke her love to, to God. That's how she spoke her love to people. She served people. And so Martha is serving. Maybe Martha is the one who planned this whole thing. Maybe she's the one who put it all together. And some of you are servants and love to do those sorts of things. And as Christians, that's what we're called to be as well. We're not only called to have changed lives, but we're called to have serving hearts. People who love to serve other people. And people who love to serve God. And here we have Martha, who, not being rebuked this time, is serving Lazarus, serving Jesus, serving Mary and all those others who happen to be at the party. As a Christian, much of what we do really revolves around that. Jesus was a servant, we're servants. The, The minister is a servant. It comes from the word for servant. Uh, A deacon, when you guys hear the term deacon, it's not a title. A a deacon's not a a leadership title. A deacon is an, an explanation it's a definition of someone. So when someone says the deacons, that they're saying the servants. It comes from the word servant. And so it's an explanation of who you are. You're a servant within the church. You don't have to have that title to be a minister or a deacon. You can serve. Anybody can serve. Anybody can minister. We do have those roles, those official roles within the church. But it's simply an explanation of what you do. You serve. When they appointed deacons in the New Testament, they found people who were already doing those things. People who were already serving, and they put them in those roles as an official role. And so service is what we do. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather serve one another humbly in love. You see, when he frees us, when he changes us, we could say, well, look, I've got this freedom in Christ. I can do whatever I want to do. Some people were using it that way. They were saying, well, because grace abounds, we can continue to sin however we want to sin, and God's grace keeps coming on us. He says, don't use it that way. You don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh and do the things that you want to do. You use your freedom in Christ to serve one another and do it humbly in love, like Philippians 2 that we did read from earlier mentions. You humbly serve people. So we're changed lives within the church. We're serving hearts within the church. And then notice what happens in verse 3. So Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. You know what else we're to be as a church? Sacrificial 
sacrificial living, the way that we live, it's not about me anymore, it's about Christ. It's not about me, it's about his kingdom. It's not about me, it's about his church. Sacrificial living. You see, what happens is there's, there's sort of another person in this story who says, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was the perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? See, what, what Judas lets us know is just how much this is worth. 300 denarii, a denarii was a day's wage. Was a day's wage. This is almost a year's worth of working that's happened. Now, some people suggest that in today's time, and I guess it depends on what you make, but maybe around $25,000 worth of money, of, of perfume that she pours on Jesus' feet. $25,000 worth of it. And Judas is standing back going, is he really worth that? It's interesting because not too many days beyond this, he's going to give the equivalent of about $1,000 or be given the equivalent of about $1,000 for the life of Jesus. He's whining about $25,000 going on Jesus. And, and John gives us a little glimpse into why. Because he wanted the money. Because he was selfish. See, within the church, we are sacrificial. We're to be sacrificial. But so many times, if we're not careful within that, we miss the main point. The church sometimes misses, or people within the church. Remember I said this morning, as we started the worship service, this is an individual thing that you do. You choose. You choose whether to focus on Jesus during the Lord's Supper. I can't make you choose that. I can't make you focus on that. You choose whether you sing the songs. You choose whether you give. You choose whether you listen. You choose whether the, the Word of God makes a difference in your life or not. No one else can make that choice for you. You choose it. And so in this house, we have a man who's choosing to sit there and listen to Jesus. We have a woman who's choosing to bring and serve the food and to take care of Jesus. And we have a woman who's choosing to pour out a year's worth of wages on Jesus. And then we have a man who chooses selfishly to miss the point. He doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't understand sacrificial living for him. You see, when the, the church has its heart in the right place, then it's changed lives, serving hearts, and sacrificial living. When we got our hearts in the right place, we look like Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, he was conformed to the world rather than being transformed by the renewing of his mind, the changed living, the serving heart, the sacrificial life that he could have brought, but he chose not to. He chose not to see it. He chose rather to be selfish. But I do want to point out something. Notice verse 3. When she did this, she brought this, and she poured it on his feet. It says... 
in verse 3, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. People notice when we live out our Christian lives the way we're supposed to. The fragrance of what we do goes out to the world. The impact goes to the world. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify the Father. They see the difference that's being made. Now, what I don't know is did Mary bring this gift to him of her own? She kind of gets the credit for it, and maybe that's the case. But maybe it was a joint gift between Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Whatever the case, there was a sacrifice that was made by the people who loved him. And when sacrifice, just like the sacrifices that we make, the aroma filled the air. When we have changed lives, serving hearts, sacrificial living, we change the whole atmosphere. It's a celebration. It's a glorious occasion. It's bringing glory to God when we come together to worship Him individually and as a group. But sometimes people miss the point. And He missed the point. Judas missed it bad because instead of being someone who would celebrate Jesus it's going to lead him to take his own life because of the way that he viewed the world and the way that he viewed life and the way that he viewed Jesus. I want you to notice a couple passages with me. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 16. When we sit around the table, just like Lazarus and Mary and Martha, here's what happens. Remember that aroma? Hebrews 13, 15 through 16 through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that give thanks to his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. All those things that Lazarus and Mary and Martha do, Hebrew, the Hebrew writer points out to us, Offering up the sacrifice of praise, giving and serving and loving, those things are sacrifices to God. They go up before him. Paul says in Ephesians 5 and verse 2, And walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us, and notice this, an offering and a sacrifice to God with a sweet-smelling aroma. He says, Christ's sacrifice to God was one where he loved us and he gave himself for us. And that sacrifice he made was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. But the very first thing he says in that verse is, and you do the same. Walk in love. Serve one another in love. And be like the sacrifice that Jesus made. Now, it's not just those people inside that room. Notice when Jesus addresses it, he says, let her alone so that she may keep it or have this moment for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. We celebrate him while he's here. That's what he was saying. Celebrate me while I'm here. There'll be opportunities for you to serve the poor and there'll be opportunities for you to serve people. Christ is to be celebrated. Now notice verse 9. The large crowd of Jews then learned that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, 
but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see, there are those on the outside of the church as well who have selfish ambitions. Judas was within the group that walked with Jesus, and he missed the point because of his selfishness. And then there were those on the outside that said, hey, we want to go see Jesus, but really we just want to see Lazarus. We want to see the, the, the entertain. We want to be entertained. We want to see these, these great things. We want, we want to see the miracles. We want to, be, um, to see the cool stuff. All those things is what, were what those people were looking for, and not Jesus only. We need to focus on Jesus only. We need to show the world that Jesus only is worth it. That he's worth it. He's worth everything. And then there were those who were selfishly wanting to get rid of Jesus. And not just him, but get rid of the man that was proving the power of Jesus. How, how crazy is that? Hey, we know Jesus raised him from the dead, so let's kill him. Have y'all thought through that? If he raised him from the dead and you kill him, what can he do again? He could raise him from the dead. But the, the other part of that is that, that they knew he was dead, and they knew that he was raised from the dead, and they still wouldn't believe. Selfishness. Selfishness about losing what they had. See, what you have to do first today, if you want to come to Jesus, the first hurdle that you have to jump over is to lose selfishness. It can't be about you and come to Jesus. It can't be about what you want and come to Jesus. It can't be about your needs and come to Jesus. You've got to come to Him and lay down the selfishness. And when you lay down that selfishness, then He can change your life. He can change you not for just a moment, but for an eternity. See, Lazarus would die again at some point. But he would live forever because he belonged to Jesus. You're going to die one day, but you'll live forever because you belong to Jesus. Lay down selfishness. Let him change your life. Serve him with all your heart. Become a servant. Have a servant's heart like Jesus had. And then have that sacrificial living. Every day... You're offering up your life as a sacrifice to him. Are you ready to come to him? It starts with believing, repenting, turning away from the things that you want. See, that's where you lose that selfishness. Confessing him as Lord. I'm not Lord anymore. He's Lord. I'm giving him lordship of my life. Turn over the selfishness. Be buried in baptism with him so that he can raise you from the dead like he raised Lazarus from the dead, except now in a spiritual sense, we're raised from the dead to live on for eternity. If we can assist you this morning, won't you come as we stand and sing?